on WealthTrack, B of A's influential equity strategist, Savita Subramanian, on why the market is at an inflection point. Our view is inflation could be stickier and last a lot longer than what investors are currently expecting and pricing into uh, to the market. So I think that's another key point to think about, both as an individual consumer, as an investor, is, okay, how do I brace myself for potentially a longer cycle of inflationary pressures? What it means for investors is on Consuelo Mack WealthTrack. Funding provided by ClearBridge Investments, Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. The new era of higher inflation and interest rates is already proving to be a challenging one for investors. The first quarter of 2022 was the worst one in two years for the stock market, with the S&P 500 down 5% after seven quarters in a row of gains. And the tech-loaded Nasdaq lost more than 9%, having quickly gone in and out of a bear market. Meanwhile, inflation has reached 40-year highs, and to fight it, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates for the first time since 2018. And after years of easing credit, is signaling an aggressive policy of multiple rate hikes in the months ahead. Then there are all the other disturbing and disruptive developments to consider. The extended impact of COVID on global economic growth, numerous supply chain bottlenecks and delays, geopolitical tensions, first and foremost Russia's unprovoked war against Ukraine, but also aggressive actions from China, North Korea, and Iran. At times, the market is not climbing a wall of worry, it's embracing it. How to navigate these challenges as investors is the job of this week's guest. She is influential strategist Savita Subramanian, who wears two large hats at B of A Global Research. She is head of ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance Research, the first in that position, and also the head of U.S. Equity and Quantitative Strategy. Her responsibilities include U.S. sector allocations for equities, forecasts for the S&P 500 and other major U.S. indices, quantitative equity strategy, and global ESG research. Subramanian has been named a star analyst by institutional investors for the last nine years, with the unusual distinction of being ranked in four categories in 2021, including number one in ESG research, the first time that category was considered. She was also named a Barron's Top 100 Women in U.S. Finance for the last three years. This is Subramanian's first appearance on WealthTrack, so we have a lot of territory to cover. First up, why she believes the market is at a major inflection point. So first of all, if you think about it, we've been in a multi-decade cycle of a falling cost of capital, both falling interest rates, um, you know, the Fed funds rate just bottomed out at zero. We've been in an environment where um, the market cost of capital for equities has been generally declining. So risk assets today are actually, um, you know, discounting fairly low risks. And I think we're moving into an environment that looks very different from a cost of capital perspective. I mean, if you think about it, the Fed just embarked on what looks like, you know, a, a couple of years of tightening. Um, we've right. got uh, the the long end of the curve or interest rates on a global basis are, are close to, you know, thousand year lows based on uh, some data that we've looked at in the past. So our view is that things are just going to move higher rather than lower. So that's a very important change in terms of thinking about what works in an environment where the cost of capital is increasing 
And most of us have never experienced that in our careers. It looks like the Fed's going to be more aggressive than people had been expecting, which is going to have some real repercussions, right? Absolutely. And if you think about where we started the year versus where we are today, expectations for Fed uh, rate hikes have basically trebled, if not quadrupled. So at the beginning of the year, folks were expecting maybe two hikes this year. Now we're into an environment where it's, you know, seven or eight, and, you know, some of them are going to be 50 basis points. So this is a much more hawkish uh, view today that, that consensus uh, participants are thinking about than where we were at the beginning of the year. So that's one big change that has both near-term and longer-term implications. This is happening with the, within the context of a larger global change that we've been writing about for the past several years, even before the healthcare pandemic. Um, but this is the idea that we're moving from globalization and taking advantage of cheap costs and, you know, kind of outsourcing and moving stuff around the world to take advantage of, uh, you know, tax arbitrage, labor arbitrage, cost arbitrage. That seems to be coming to at least a pause, if not a reversal. Right. And the reasons I say that are, you know, you think about what's happened in China with the trade and tech and security wars um, even before COVID. Then we had COVID reveal the real risks of global supply chains from a, you know, from a really unusual vantage point of a, of a global healthcare crisis. And now we have an environment where Russia-Ukraine conflicts are really revealing the risks of being too dependent on one nation for oil. So it's all sort of coming to a head in the idea that we're at peak globalization, we're at trough rates. Uh, you know, I think this, these are two really important themes that we need to think about as we navigate the next few years or next few decades. And of course, globalization was very deflationary. So that's another huge change that we're talking about. So these are really, you know, multi-generational changes um, that the markets have not had to deal with uh, for, you know, many decades. So how is the market dealing with it? Savita. Well, I mean, my sense is that we're <laughs> we're in a little bit of denial right now. I mean, uh, I think it's interesting because you know I, I look around me, and the average age of a, a portfolio manager is about you know forty forty five years old, and no professional money manager has actually seen an environment like this during his or her career. Right. We haven't seen an environment where we're closing borders rather than opening borders. We haven't seen an environment where inflation is actually creeping into consumers' wallets. As you point out, globalization, technology, all of these trends have been very disinflationary. And we've enjoyed this by buying more and more stuff and, you know, feeling um, feeling relatively healthy from a consumption standpoint. Now, all of a sudden, you know, the cost of gas and oil have doubled or tripled from the lows during COVID and it's starting to pinch. So I think that these are all changes we're feeling real time. And the common assumptions, which I think are, are potentially not right, is that this is all temporary and it's going to subside very soon. Our view is inflation could be stickier and last a lot longer than what investors are currently expecting and pricing into uh, to the market. So I think that's another key point to think about both as an individual consumer, as an investor, is, OK, how do I brace myself for 
potentially a longer cycle of inflationary pressures. So when I think about rates kind of moving higher gradually, I think that what we're in for is just the delta on interest rates is going to be positive rather than negative. And I don't know if that's going to be so painful right away. And this is one of the reasons that we think that, you know, seven or seven rate hikes this year might be all right. It might be handled by the market. Because when you step back and look at interest rates, they're going from zero to something around 2% over the next couple of years. That's not so bad. That's not even a neutral rate on, um, on the Fed uh, short rates. So I think that in, in that backdrop, the early stages of this rising rate cycle may not be anathema to U.S. equities or even to, um, to smaller companies. But potentially, you know, there comes a point where the cost of capital gets high enough that it starts to stymie growth and lending and borrowing. And that's when it, it starts to have a real impact on the economy. And, and my sense is that we're not, not close to those levels of, of rates at this point. What are going to be the market drivers uh, going forward, in, in, let's say, in the next year? I think there's a lot of really positive levers that we're looking at. Yeah. So cash yields are going to go from being worth zero to worth something. And that is a market difference in, uh, in the way we should think about investing. And, and the reason I say that is, you know, normally when you pick stocks, companies with high free cash flow outperform companies with low free cash flow if you adjust for prices. But over the last 10 years, that strategy of investing has actually failed. And it's very unusual. But I think the reason is that cash yields were, were basically bottoming out at zero. If you think about normalizing cash yields to something you know, above zero, to the idea that cash is actually worth a return, I think that gets us back to a more normal market environment where you, you do want to look for companies that are generating free cash and are doing so at a, at a reasonable price. And those are strategies, those fundamental strategies really haven't worked as well in this zero interest rate policy environment that we've been living in. And I think that that is one key theme that we would be really uh, encouraging investors to look into, um, despite the fact that free cash flow generation hasn't necessarily mattered as much over the last decade. Savita, there have been many calls on Wall Street, yours among them in recent years, to rotate out of the winners of the last decade into the laggards. So for instance, from growth into value and large cap into small cap. Do you think they'll stick now? I do. I think it's going to work. And I think we're in for a sustained yeah. cycle where, you know, value or free cash flow generation outperforms speculative growth. And I think that's where it's interesting to see that folks are really skeptical about that because we've all been burned so many times by believing that this value rotation was beginning and then it lasted for, you know, one quarter and then we went right back to growth stocks. Right. So I think that's one of the psychological reasons that investors are very gun shy about reducing exposure to some of these, you know, high growth companies that have made them lots and lots of money over the last decade. So it's an excellent point. If you think about the world changing from one one state of affairs to the opposite state of affairs, we should all be doing the opposite in our investment portfolios. So we should think about the winners and the beneficiaries of cheap capital and low hurdle rates. These were mostly speculative investments. These were high growth 
long-duration companies where you buy today, but you get your earnings way out in the future. And my theory is these long-duration assets, which are very crowded and still very expensive, are likely to suffer as we see um, as we see rates normalize. So yeah, you can call it a lot of different things. You can call it growth versus value, and that would sort of get you out of technology stocks and into energy, financials, some of these more cyclical companies. I like that that trade. I still think, though, that there are pockets of technology that now look cheap enough that they've actually migrated over into that value cohort. The pockets of technology that you think have gotten sufficiently cheap that they actually represent good value, what are those pockets? They're mostly old uh, kind of, uh, let's call it unit volume sales tech rather than innovation and high growth tech. So I'll give you some examples. If you think about semiconductors, semiconductors are an area of the market where if the economy is humming along and folks are spending on automation, companies are spending on automation, if we're all, um, you know, kind of buying more stuff and uh, and technology spend is increasing, semiconductors benefit. The risk with semiconductors is obviously China, Taiwan, conflict, um, Taiwan is one of the biggest global semiconductor manufacturers in the, on, in the world. Um, if we see any sort of struggle in terms of importing chips from uh, overseas based on geopolitical risks, right. that could be a, a, you know, a kind of game over for, for semis in the near term. Other areas within the tech spectrum that are starting to look cheap, um, companies like uh, um, you know, within the uh, telecommunications space, companies that pay a regular dividend yield. They're not the sort of exciting growth stocks, but they're the companies that are really, um, you know, turning into recurring revenue streams with predictable earnings uh, that have carved out a certain portion of their capital to return to you and me. I think those are the areas that we're seeing uh, enough of a derating that it's time to actually step in and take a long view. A big call that you made in November of 2020 Savita, was that basically that energy and, um, you know, economic recovery beneficiaries would really benefit. And in fact, um, that turned out to be the case. So what is your call now on the cyclicals? I mean, energy especially, where you really went from a, you know, big underweight to a big overweight in late 2020. What's your call now? We're still overweight. And (laughs) I think it's, again, one of these sectors where, it's done really well for the last year and a half, but everybody still hates it. And I think the reason, and they might even hate it more because nobody's been invested in energy and they, they sort of missed out on those gains. So it's, it's interesting when you look at the average mutual fund in the U.S., their stance on energy has remained deeply underweight. Then on top of that, right. you have sustainably focused investors who are... Um, really encouraged to shun fossil fuels and big emitters where energy is still a very light exposure in their portfolios. But, you know, as we see geopolitics drive oil prices even higher, as we see energy companies very reluctant to start producing again, I think what we're all grappling with is the idea of, okay, yes, we do want to get to a lower emissions world, but we're not there yet. And we need to keep the lights on and, you know, keep things going until we get to that net zero world. And energy and oil play a really critical role in that transition. 
Um, so my sense is that when you think about this sector, it's been starved of capital for the last, you know, at least five years from this ESG and sustainable investment boom. And today we're at a point where energy is still incredibly inexpensive relative to other uh, other sectors within the S&P 500. Energy companies on a free cash flow basis offer something like six percentage points more than tips. Tips are inflation protected um, bonds. Right. Treasury inflation protected securities. Right. Exactly. So so what's interesting is that energy is also an inflation protection device that offers yield, but it's still trading at rock bottom valuations relative to to uh, uh, to tips to other sources of inflation protection. And I think that you know it's now starting to hurt fund managers not having that exposure to energy because it's gotten to be big enough in the market that that being out of the sector is going to start to hurt. So we're still bullish on energy. We think that there's a, a longer cycle at least another year for energy stocks. Um, for oil prices obviously you know expect some volatility but I think that we're in an environment where as the world reopens and we fly more and drive more and as we see supply still relatively constrained the pressure on oil prices remains uh, to the upside. How do you reconcile your, I know you're head of ESG research at, at B of A as well. How do you reconcile that position? And, and you've been an early leader on that, a major leader with investing in fossil fuel companies. It's funny. It does sound like a bit of a, a, bit of a conundrum. Um, I actually think energy companies are are becoming very ESG focused. And and they really have to be, if you think about it, because they're in the hot seat. Um, you know, they're in the penalty box for being the big emitters. But what they're doing now is fascinating. So just in the last couple of years, energy companies got the memo and have basically put in place carbon reduction, carbon emissions reduction targets. They've put in place aggressive proposals more so than other sectors where they're actually aligning CEO compensation with near-term carbon reduction goals. And this is a completely different environment for the energy sector than what we, were, what we experienced in 2015, 2016. So these companies are basically telling us and really putting their money where their mouth is and telling us we're going to get better, but you also need us as we move towards net zero. The other kind of really important um, aspect of energy companies, and you know, when you look at the the majors in the U.S., um, the dividends are sacrosanct. These companies have told us that they will preserve dividends at all costs. Their payout ratios are actually low enough that it's a it's a comfortable level of earnings that they're paying out to us as investors. And, you know, when I think about our outlook on the market over the next few years, we're not really looking for great price returns. So I think a lot of the action that we're going to get as, as investors is in, our, is in our total return or our dividend yield. And that's where energy plays a really interesting role in that they're capital disciplined, they're playing nice with uh, sustainable investors, and they're also a very necessary commodity as we move towards a world where, um, you know, where, where we, we reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. So, you know, I think that the interesting thing about the war in Russia-Ukraine underscores the idea that being um, energy independent is positive. So the U.S. is actually in a, a better place than, say, Europe or, or other parts of the globe. 
But I think it also underscores the idea that, um, you know, that oil is still a necessary resource that we need in right. order to, you know, function as a society. And total return means, you know, you're getting dividends. And that's um, historically until, you know, the last decade had been a, a major uh, source of investment returns over the years. So uh, going back to that, what other sectors um, are, are we looking at, you know, high, you know, dividend payouts? Yes. And, so and growing dividend payouts. Growing dividends, exactly. So I think the sectors where we're really seeing the strongest positioning for an environment of, you know, potentially c continued or stickier inflation but also relatively low price returns and equities. So our theme is really simple. It's inflation-protected yield. And stocks actually are in a great place in the spectrum of asset classes because, you know, you think about it, commodities offer you inflation protection but no yield. And then bonds offer you all yield but no inflation protection. And stocks sit right in the middle. They basically have uh, tether to inflationary cycles because earnings are nominal. And they also pay a higher dividend yield than a lot of the fixed income offerings out there. So these sectors that look particularly attractive are those that would benefit from an inflation cycle and also have low enough payout ratios. They're not paying out all their earnings and their dividends, so they can actually increase that, that payout over time. They can comfortably maintain and grow that dividend. And the sectors are basically energy. Energy screens really well from that perspective. Financials is another sector where we don't necessarily think of financials as a high-quality sector, especially after, you know, living through the financial crisis. But these companies have cleaned up their acts. They've shored up capital. That you know the the financial sector now, thanks to Uncle Sam, looks a lot healthier from a quality and a balance sheet perspective than it did back in 2007. And these are companies that are growing dividends, uh, have a healthy payout ratio, low earnings volatility. This is another sector where I think your dividend yield prospects are really attractive. Um, other areas that we like for dividends: healthcare. Healthcare is a sector that has been kind of a sleepy sector, even though we've gone through this, this healthcare crisis and a global pandemic, healthcare hasn't necessarily performed as well as one would have expected. So it's sort of left in the rubble. It's incredibly inexpensive, still very high quality, and a great source of yield and income. Pockets of real estate, I think, offer that, that, that inflation-protected yield as well. And then industrials and, and select consumer stocks I would look to for, for inflation-protected yield. When it comes to income, there's one really easy screen that we can all run at home. And I tell my parents about this. I tell my friends. But it's basically if you take the market and you look for the companies that pay not the highest dividends... But that second quintile, the, the kind of above market, pretty high but not super stretched dividends, that's an area of the market that has outperformed every other quintile and has offered a lower probability of loss than every other quintile of the market going back to the 80s. So I feel like it might just be that easy. You know, look for companies that are paying a dividend that's safe but not stretched. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, what would you have all of us own some of in a long-term diversified portfolio? For the long-term, one of the, the, the sort of tried-and-true strategies is small-cap value. So this would be something like the Russell 2000 value uh, index. And 
basically what we've found is that the volatility of small cap value stocks is very high. But if you have a long enough time horizon and you can stomach that volatility, maybe you don't look at your portfolio every day, um, that, that asset class or that segment of the equity market actually offers the strongest returns uh, on a longer term basis. Sabita Subramanian, thank you so much for joining us on Wealth Track for the first time. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks. Thanks, Consuelo. It's been great to be here. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is one several of our guests have recommended, including Subramanian. It is Don't Market Time. B of A Global Research looked at each decade from 1930 through 2020, and the story is the same. If you miss just the 10 best days per decade, your return in the S&P 500 is much less than if you remain fully invested. And it's true in each and every 10-year period. The point is really driven home by the cumulative difference. Staying fully invested in the market from 1930 to 2020, the return is nearly 20,000%, whereas missing just the best 10 days per decade, the cumulative return is a paltry 45%. Study after study has shown that individuals who move in and out of index funds and actively managed funds underperform the index and the funds they have invested in. Time is a rare advantage individual investors have over professional investors because we don't have to beat a benchmark or competitors or risk losing our jobs if we lag them. It is up to us to use this major advantage to our benefit by not trying to time the market. Well, next week, superstar Fed watcher, now Professor Paul McCulley, grades the Fed on its job performance and what it means for the economy and markets. In this week's extra feature, Subramanian talks about why her major in philosophy is more useful than her math major in her strategy work. In the meantime, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you so much for watching. Have a super weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.